which is to be investigated and understood. The second noble truth is there is a cause of suffering, which is craving, and this is to be abandoned. The third noble truth is there is a possibility of the end of craving and the end of suffering, which is to be realized. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Noble Path, which leads to the advancement of the holy life, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. And this should be developed. Regarding this first noble truth, the Buddha would say, There is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, which keeps us bound on this cyclic wheel of becoming. That one thing is the truth of suffering. The not seeing of the first noble truth is what keeps us bound on this cyclic wheel of becoming. So it's said that even with this rare and precious understanding under the Bodhi tree, the Buddha was reluctant to offer these liberating teachings to all because he thought listeners without direct experience would be stuck in theory, in theoretical knowledge, and people really needed to practice for themselves to open deeply to these noble truths. So it's not just about understanding them cognitively, but going through a training where they can be realized experientially. So to make a longer story short, <clears throat> shorter, when the Buddha was under this Bodhi tree, it said that a celestial being, a being from another realm called devas, appeared and reminded him that there are beings with but little dust in their eyes. Beings who would be able to undertake the threefold training, for example, the training in sila, living harmoniously. That training is the training we take every morning and living in alignment with the non-harming attitudes of mind, body, and speech. And the second training is developing calm and concentration. This is a training in samadhi. And from these two as a basis, there's a possibility of developing liberating wisdom. So the Buddha was looking into this with his um, eye of seeing beings all over the world and could understand that there are indeed beings with but little dust in their eyes. And those beings are us because we're here today and during our uh, life, many of us have continued to open to the Four Noble Truths in our lives. So with that reminder, what happened at that time was compassion arose in the Buddha's heart, which was a very strong and natural inclination for this being. And from that compassion, he decided to share this liberating knowledge acquired through his own practice, through his experiential understanding of the truth of how things are. So these precious teachings we're all benefiting from today 
are flowing to us from this great river of compassion. And we are uh, receiving the beautiful legacy of that. We're fortunate to kind of receiving, be receiving this current, this river of love, of compassion for this generation, past generations, and for generations to come as long as the Buddha Sasana is alive in the world. So it's said that compassion is one of the most beautiful feelings we can experience as a human being. It's when our genuine caring uh, opens up to what's difficult, not just uh, what's difficult in, in life around us, but what's difficult within us. Because it takes compassion to open to the first noble truth. That's why compassion is so utterly important in the teachings of the Buddha. Sometimes compassion is spoken about, described as facing reality with an open heart. Facing all there is to face with an open heart. Not just trying to understand it cognitively, but to really understand it experientially. To touch it with our experience, with our hearts, to really feel what's going on inside of us and what's going on inside in relationship to the outer world of suffering, too. This is not easy to do, of course. I just look at myself in my life, and it's getting better, but there's still work to be done. Where when there's things that are difficult to face, one of the immediate reactions that my heart and mind would take is to close down or to feel overwhelmed or to strike out at with anger if I don't like what I hear or what's being talked about or done in the world or what I don't like about myself. It can close down very easily. I can avoid looking at it. There's so many ways that I can resist looking at what's difficult in myself. Just, you know, follow one of my habit patterns and turn away from from it. So distracting oneself, striking out, making everything so hard to accept, you know, inside. It's said that this particular beautiful quality of the heart becomes even more beautiful and it's sometimes more rare as human beings when we can have this unconditional care for our own vulnerability. Sometimes it's easier for us to put it outside of ourselves um, with my own children and grandchildren and my own family. I find it's easier to turn towards what's going on with them and try to help them And I don't realize sometimes that I'm the one that's going through difficulty. And I'm really not having the clearest heart and the strongest heart to be able to face what they might be going through. So it's this unconditional care for our own vulnerability, for our own lives, without getting bogged down into being identified with self-pity or leading into life from our suffering, which is a, it's just a 
kind of the very strong identity that we can have sometimes. So I understand experientially that this is one of the most powerful allies that we can have with mindful awareness. It's very much like mindful awareness in that uh, compassion, of course, opens to what's difficult. And when we combine it with our mindful awareness, it really helps this mindful awareness be stronger, to be able to really mirror, to be able to face what's going on within us and all around us without getting more bogged down in the suffering of the world or our own suffering. So a lot of times we hear the word compassion and think that this is a kind of a weak feeling, you know, like we feel soft. And in a way, we do. We open our hearts, becomes kind of softer, more malleable. But it's a very strong feeling. It's not a weak feeling. Sometimes this opening of the heart is... Uh, accompanied by courage, which is a quality of compassion, courage, the courage to really face what we need to face sometimes when we're in a situation like this. It's very, it's one of the hardest things to do to open to difficult places in our hearts or face what we have to face in the world with a heart that can't even open to our own pain sometimes. So it's a, it's a very good place to start here. We have all this help, all this support to open to what's difficult. So where we, we can open our hearts to are sometimes the personal tsunamis of our own life, the places of our own heartache, our own heartbreak. Sometimes there are beautiful qualities in ourselves that we don't allow ourselves to know as well. So in some mysterious way, I feel when I'm compassionate that it makes me feel complete, even though I'm facing something that's really difficult. And even more so, I feel complete because I can open to it. But I can feel complete because there is a completion of that, at least in the moment, of the capacity of my heart to open to what's hard. And maybe it only takes a moment, but it's a very fulfilling moment. It's a moment where I can touch into that courage that can open to sometimes what's, what can be debilitating. So compassion is strong what we open to can be debilitating. We have to watch how much we can open to it, but um, it takes time, it takes little by little, it takes titrating, open, opening to what's difficult for us. <clears throat> so being able to face our losses, our vulnerabilities, and then wisely care for ourselves and others in this life. In an old journal, um, I don't normally write journals, but one time I brought out a journal and I was having a sit-down with um, one of our teachers, Manindraji, when he visited 
my home a long time ago. And um, I had written that I was feeling this quiet desperation in my heart, and I didn't know what it was. But I looked back into my life and thought, I'd been feeling this for a long time, as long as I had become conscious of who I was, what my feelings were, this quiet desperation. And I asked Manindraji, what is that? What's this quiet desperation? I mean, my life is fairly okay. I have the usual ups and downs that people have, and um, sometimes more than my share, I thought. But I still had this, there was something incomplete about my life. And I asked him, what about that? And he said that this is some kind of spiritual urgency. And I came to the Dharma also when I was very young, in my 20s. And during that time, when I came to the Dharma, I was a, a single parent of three very small children and life was really, um, it was really heartbreaking for me during that time. So like a lot of you, I came to the Dharma because of heartbreak, because of loss, because of some deep suffering. And it really, it really pushed me to search for the meaning of life in a deeper way. And so during that time, I also asked Manindraji, with some desperation still and some frustration. What's the meaning of my life anyway? I mean, I'm taking care of these children. I was uh, remarried at that point and I had a wonderful father for those children. Um, Three of those children weren't his and then I had another child. And life was fairly okay. I was grateful for my life. But still, there was some degree of deep dissatisfaction that I wasn't fulfilling what I needed to fulfill in my life. So when I asked him, what's the meaning of my life anyway? What's the reason for my being born? And he answered in a very straightforward way, not um, holding any words back, and he was very clear. He said, the reason for your life is to develop compassion and wisdom. And it was so simple to me you know, okay, I can take that in, you know, <laughs> now what do I do? And that was that was what led me on onward to taking this path of practice. So the quality of compassion, what Manindra said to me is that this will help you free your heart because it will help you open to what is difficult to open to. And a lot of what I had to bear, just remembering what I had to do to, to get to that place in my life of um, raising these children and um, having gone through a, a really difficult time, but, you know, it was different then. Things were a little more balanced. And so I could kind of open my heart to the past and really relive things in a way where I could feel everything I had gone through that I was so afraid to feel and then I could open to it. So this quality of compassion is such an incredibly powerful, equally important part of what is called the two great wings of the Dharma. 
the two great wings of the Dharma, or the Dhamma, as sometimes you may, may hear us say, uh, use that word differently, Dhamma. So these two great wings are compassion and wisdom. And each one strengthens the other, each one is an ally to the other, so that both of them can become strong in our lives. Compassion helps us to open to wisdom. Wisdom can be really difficult to open to. By the way, sometimes uh, a lot of uh, the word dukkha, you know, the first noble truth of dukkha, is translated as suffering. And sometimes, for a long time, I've thought about suffering as, um, you know, this is what I'm going through, opening to this suffering. And one time, Upandita said to me, this is not just suffering, this is wisdom that you're opening to. You're opening to the first noble truth. And don't just, he meant to tell me, don't just term it as suffering, because this is a wisdom to open to, to understand this first noble truth is a wisdom. And that's what we're doing in our life in the Dharma here. So it's this strong, great bird of the Dhamma that, that is helping us, this opening to wisdom through compassion, and then compassion helps us to more wisdom, which opens to more compassion, and it's a great um, uh, feeding of each other, supporting of one another, so that the compassion becomes stronger, the wisdom becomes stronger as we carry on in our lives in the Dharma. So I'd like to read a few words about compassion and wisdom from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And um, I took a lot of my teachings about compassion through the Dalai Lama also, so I I owe a lot of what I'm saying uh, to the Dalai Lama. So a lot of this is channeling the Dalai Lama to you. And of course my other teachers Now a few words on the combination of wisdom and compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, these are considered the two most important aspects of practice. Just like a bird needs two wings to fly, a very compassionate person without wisdom is only a likable fool. And a person with wisdom and no compassion is like a lonely hermit in an ivory tower. Both can reinforce each other. Once we realize how interrelated we all are, it is, not, it is hard not to feel some level of compassion. And once we feel compassionate towards others, we realize our deep interrelationship. And then I might add, and then there is a, a great strength to that. So that strength of compassion which leads to that interrelationship helps us to have that support in this world, in this relative world, to face all we have to face in the Dharma. So the Dhamma or the Dharma means the truth of how it is. It means the true nature of reality. This is what we're learning here, we're opening to. This is what we're taking the training for. It's not to get more comfortable in life. 
which it, it does help us to do, definitely. But it really, the, the Dharma is for helping us to open to how things really are on the deepest level of life and come in alignment with that and live in alignment with that so that when things change, it doesn't mess up our hearts. When we have losses, it's part of life. We may shed tears, we may be sad, and it's all part of life. When we understand the deep uh, anatanis, the deep selflessness of all of life, it, isn't, it doesn't come as a shock to us. We see how through this understanding we're deeply interrelated with all of life. And so it gives us strength. And when we open to the unsatisfactory nature of life, the dukkha nature of life, that wisdom, we learn, as Joseph was talking last night, that we, we don't really have to hold on to anything. We don't have to crave, we don't have to hold on to anything. We can, we can have wisdom that can incline towards what is good in life and go towards what is that. And we can understand that things come and go in life. We can let go when there needs to be letting go. We can enjoy when there needs to be joy. And we can let go when that joy leaves. It's just all part of this deepening in life. So it's this natural unfolding, this universal truth. It's not easy to open to and to accept. And it's what we're doing here in the deepest levels of our practice. So in these rare conditions of more quiet and stillness in the outer environment and this relative solitude and lessened distraction that we have in the inner environment, uh, we start quieting down inside, moment to moment wise, and practice comes alive for us. We stop trying to solve the things of the world in practice here because we're learning how to have more clarity more strength, more compassion, so that we can bring that into the world. This time here is not wasted just because we're not solving the problems of the world. It's definitely incredibly important that we do this practice here. With various meditational skill sets that we learn, our minds and hearts can become at times like a still forest pool, And we're able to witness what is going on beneath the outer layer of what we bring into life, the outer layer of what we bring into practice in a meditation like this, the ruffled busyness of our lives, thinking, you know, that I can just, I'm talking about myself, that I can just um, solve all the problems of my children And it carries on through two or three days in almost every single retreat before I say, wake up and smell the coffee, Kamala. You're not here for that right now. And so I can give it up. Not so easily sometimes. So this is from, again, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. The absolute truth cannot be realized within the domain of the habitual patterns of the mind All great traditions have told us it is through the heart. It's through quieting the heart and the mind. 
So I'd like to connect this beautiful quality of compassion back to the Four Noble Truths again, and particularly the First Noble Truth. In the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, the Buddha laid out these Four Noble Truths. In the First Noble Truth, he started out with the statement of reality, that we're all faced with this reality as human beings. So I'm wanting to remind myself and everybody that the Buddha was not a pessimist. He was a realist. And so we wanted to start out with what's true, not what we're kind of reaching for in some maybe different world cycle or different heaven realm. But what's the dilemma we're all facing that we need to take a look at and see what we can do about this in our own hearts. And so in the first noble truth, he started out with the statement of reality, that this is what we're faced with as human beings. In the ancient language of Pali, uh, P-A-L-I, many of you are familiar with that term, but some of you may not be. That is the ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were handed down in in the very early years. And the first noble truth is presented in two words uh, in, in the Buddha's teaching. And those two words are dukkha, satcha. Satcha means the truth, and dukkha means suffering. And so those two words coming together simply mean there is the truth of suffering. It's been wrongly translated for a long time as life is suffering. So that's not a way to bring people to the Dharma, (laughs) sorry to say. So when I learned what it really meant, there is a truth of suffering, I thought, okay, I can be in alignment with that. There is this truth. And we can't escape it by resisting it or denying it. We can't escape it by avoiding it or being so busy that we can um, just get ourselves away from it once in a while. We have to face it. And sometimes it takes lifetimes to do that. So when I first came to the Dhamma, I heard this first noble truth. And it was one of the first talks I heard. And I realized that I'm in the right place. Because for the first time, the dilemma of my life was being acknowledged. And I felt like I was being accepted and I could accept myself as a human being. That I didn't have to be some kind of being in, a, in another realm that I always I pictured maybe many, many lifetimes um, as someone with a kind of a, a light around one's head and a, and a kind of translucent body and... Um, just a perfectly pure human being. I just, that was just so far out for me. You know, it was great to think about it, but all I could do was think about it and um, pray, you know, that maybe someday if I said enough prayers, that would happen. So um, I felt seen. I actually felt acknowledged and seen that I was a human being with this predicament in life, like all other human beings. And that was a predicament that the Buddha started out with too, as a human being. 
And that because some human being could attain that, could open to and realize something far beyond one might imagine for oneself, then that was a possibility for my life too. It might take a long time, but that was a possibility for my life as well. So it was this realistic view of life was such a relief to me. And it was like, maybe I could follow a path that would lead towards the end of what was difficult, the hardships of my life. So throughout his life, the Buddha taught that to open to that first noble truth needs a kind and courageous heart of compassion. This is what you need to start out with. Compassion carries this vitally important role to be able to open to the first noble truth and therefore the other ones as well. So one of the quiet teachers I've had in my life that I don't speak much about and I have a great gratitude for is one of the teachers, um, monastic teachers in Burma. His name is Bilin Sayadaw and um, that's because he comes from this town called Bilin. So we call him Bilin Sayadaw. And he was the one who took over um, at the helm when our teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, passed away uh, a few years ago already. I have reported to him on the side um, through some of my practices in Burma and um, in other places in the world when I practice with Upandita, who was one of my main teachers that took me through a lot of my own practice. And um, usually, you know, when you practice with Upandita, he's the main teacher. So whoever else you're reporting to is a secondary teacher, but they always talk with one another. So Bilin Seedao knew kind of like... um, tracked my own practice in life. So one time I was in San Jose and practicing with um, Seydao Upandita and Bilin Seydao. And I saw I went to Bilin Seydao and it was a really difficult time, um, juncture in my own practice. So he doesn't speak much English, but good enough. And when I went to him, I was just saying with... I don't necessarily, these, you know, later times in my practice, I don't have much, you know, crying or sobbing out, but I can have a lot of tears because it's hard sometimes. So I was uh, approaching him and there were tears of frustration and and sadness and difficulty and I'm not sure I can get through this part and Bilin Seydao has the kindest eyes and he would just look at me and he would say, it's hard, isn't it? And it was just totally acknowledging what I'm going through. Not like some great thing that I'm supposed to do in order to overcome that, but just, it's hard, isn't it? And I said, yes, Seydao, this is really hard. And he said, just be mindful. I mean, actually, all we do as Dharma teachers is figure out a thousand and one ways to tell you be mindful. 
and and just you know be a witness also to what we're all going through and to really if i can find a place in my heart where i can feel where somebody else is going to i go there first so he knew what i was going through and it was like a burning up of old understandings and a kind of cracking of the shell of new understandings coming my way about opening to things, seeing more deeply in the area of impermanence on a really deep level. And also going in with that, seeing not-selfness with all of the other, with all of the five khandas, with all of the five aggregates, every single one of them. So breaking new shells, opening to new layers, and there's still a lot to go. You know, I, I love how Manindra says, my path is not yet finished. So that's, that's the way it goes for me. You know, I can speak these things, but it doesn't mean my path is finished. It means I kind of know how it is going through it all. So sometimes the gift of compassion is simply someone bearing witness and someone knowing that you can, go, you can get through this. You, can, you got this. You know, just keep going. And a lot of times that's as much as we can say. Just keep going. There's more. You may think that you've gotten to a certain place, but there's more. It's like Joseph said last night, it's perennially opening to deeper and deeper, more liberating places of the heart. Sometimes we have to borrow each other's faith. Kalyanamita's spiritual friends are so important because when they're witnessing what we're going through and they can just bear witness to it and say, "Mm -hmm, yeah, and I know you can do this. And don't stop you from doing it, you know, from, from opening to what needs to be open to. So I want to read here from Khalil Gibran. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding, even as a stone of the fruit must break open, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. So it's um, always remember when I read this or remember our teachers that uh, they would be happy when we're having dukkha. Because <laughs> finally, you know, you're opening to something that maybe you could learn some courage from or be able to face or not back down from and see the impermanent nature of that too, the impermanent, selfless nature. See every moment of that. So compassion is described as this basic goodness, this basic goodwill of metta, of unconditional kindness that turns towards what is painful turns towards what is difficult to bear within us or around us. 
And because of that kindness, it allows us to have a friendly, connecting relationship with us, with ourselves, with what's going on within us. So without that friendly relationship to what's going on within us or around us, we will tend to push away if it's uncomfortable or we'll tend to hold on or go towards what's more comfortable and hold on to that or we'll tend to just ignore it, turn, turn our backs towards it. So this allows us to have a friendly connecting relationship with whatever's happening and to actually open to it, to actually open to what's going on within us because a lot of things that are coming up to be known want to be known in a way. I mean, it's not because it, it is, is, there's wanting in there too, but it's just that it's coming up because it's ready to be known. There are deep places of our hearts, deep crevices that are holding experiences that have been pushed down for so long, wounded places that we're finding the courage to be with little by little, And then when they can be with, we don't have to lead into our hearts with our wounds. We can lead into our heart, into life, knowing that we can be courageous with our own wounds and overcome them and therefore be a boon to people around us rather than making more trouble for ourselves and others. It's so hard to face it all. Um, and I can't see everything in my own heart either. It's really hard. So <clears throat> this karuna is a Pali word for compassion. And I want, just want to say that, as we know, metta means kindness or um, it means goodwill. Our, one of our teachers, Sayadaw Upandita, I would never, I don't remember him ever using the word metta without the word karuna. He would always say metta karuna, metta karuna. Because when metta or goodwill or the goodness of our hearts of kindness turns towards what's difficult, the aspect of compassion comes out of that. So it transforms metta into karuna or compassion. So even when we're doing metta, Practice, when we turn towards something difficult within us, automatically compassion is there. So you can, you may be doing metta for oneself and you just feel that you're opening to something difficult and your heart can just melt. Or it can, at least it has the courage and the strength to open to and to stand with, to stand with what's going on there. So it said, Uh, to describe karuna or compassion. It's the quivering of the heart that opens to what's difficult to bear. The quivering of the heart. And it quivers because it's giving a signal that energy is present. That heart is quivering, saying energy is present. Energy is present to open to this and to have the courage to face it and to do things or say things that need to be done. So it doesn't mean we just open to it. It also means we take the step. Because compassion isn't complete unless we take the step to do something about it. And maybe in the moment it's just to open to it, 
But sometimes in our lives, it's to say something, to stand up for what the truth is, to take action for what the truth is. You'll see in the um, beautiful tankas of the green Tara, the feminine uh, aspect of um, compassion in the Tibetan tradition. The green Taras depicted as the the um, right foot is ready to is almost is is in action already. It's ready to leap into action, ready to leap into what needs to be done for ourselves, for others. So it does not mean inaction. It just means opening first, having the courage to open first, and then to respond. Agnes Au, who's a Buddhist teacher, wrote in the Shambhala Sun some years ago, and here she speaks metaphorically. She says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. And so this unfiltered life is that compassion and awareness together so that we're not going into life looking at ourselves or looking at life with a kind of um, blinders on or kind of like a layer. We're looking through a layer of whatever it is that we have compassion helping us to kind of move us onward. Um, one of the things that Sayadaw Upandita would say once in a while when I'd come in for interview was, what color glasses are you wearing today, Yogi Kamala? Like, what are you looking through? What lens are you looking through? But if we're, and if we're looking through the lens, or we're, it's accompanied by compassion, can be a very strong very, very strong mindful awareness. So then we have the courage to be soberingly honest with ourselves. And sometimes it takes that because a lot of shame we can face. I'm just speaking for myself. A lot of shame, a lot of places where I've not been clear with myself or others, not been truthful. And um, places where I have not checked so often, you know, that those default settings of the mind. Feelings and states of mind that are the underpinnings of my personality, you know, so a lot of cringing moments sometimes, just (coughs) looking at that. So there's some, from long ago, I found these notes from Lily Tomlin, a great comedian and philosopher too, Uh, She says, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. (laughs) Reality is a major cause of stress. I try to avoid it as much as I can. And this is what the Dhamma is. The Dhamma is reality. It's the way things are. So to try to face it in this atmosphere where everything is helping us, encouraging us to do that. And we're kind of riding on this wave of compassion from a great being. And we're, you know, just, can we be ready to receive this legacy and to really carry it out? Or are we just going to continue with the old habit patterns? So we see how deeply rooted some patterns are. 
and we're still willing to see them as the default settings of the mind. Beautiful qualities as well, we see, and sometimes those are harder to open to. So again, this from His Holiness, a lot of this came from his book, uh, Compassion. Until you understand the meaning of suffering for yourself, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. So when we see for ourselves, for example, when we hear the news or see things going on around us in the world, and we, ought, we can automatically come um, with some, you know, very big arrow of blame on somebody else, but we can see for ourselves, I know how that is. I know how that is to, to feel sometimes that prejudice I know how that is sometimes. I know how it is to feel prejudice from someone else. Maybe. I don't know whether that's what they're feeling. But I know how it is to feel it in myself sometimes too. And so when I see that in someone else, I can see, yeah, that's suffering. Because I can see how it is in myself. So when I was going through something really hard to bear really feeling unmoored from life because of a, a deep, deep loss. <clears throat> Even with all my practice, it was really, really challenging. I, I felt like, what happened to my practice? You know, I just felt like it was gone out the window for a while. But what was happening during that time was I was really being truthful with myself. I wasn't denying what I felt when I was feeling this deep, deep loss and sadness and sometimes anger and a lot of other different things. You know, this is stuff we all go through. I'm not... I go through it too. And when I was feeling this, I just thought, I just don't know how I could keep going. And I really needed to hear like something about the first noble truth. I really needed to hear something that helped me. And so um, I was reading Mark Nepple as wonderful writer and poet. I'm sure some of you have heard of him, Mark Nepple. And he went through his own deep challenges similar to um, a loss in health and relationship. Some things were parallel. And his stories and words gave me a lot of courage and a sense of being acknowledged through uh, poetry Sometimes poetry can reach very deeply. So this is what was written. Having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of the pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So what it was trying to say to me is I was being real. I wasn't trying to say I'm above that or that I'm, I'm not going through this pain because I have had all this practice. But I was saying this is really painful and I'm feeling this pain and uh, I can see some moments of being free from it and it gives me hope. But it really took another kind of facing this first noble truth and acknowledging it that helped me through it. 
So these are the qualities of, um, of compassion that is really important for us to integrate, to interject into our own lives. Um, not this kind of soft-heartedness heart, where we kind of weaken in the face of hardship, but this kind of courageous, gentle grace that we can feel in facing what needs to be faced and open to it. Sometimes we need to find the right way, the balanced way to do that, and we can do that with the help of our teachers, our spiritual friends. It's not always good to pull our hearts open, pull our petals open, and uh, not have safety nets that we know to go to. So there's a lot more to be said about that. But wanted to... um, kind of express, explain, describe a a full spectrum of compassion. Because compassion can be like the middle ground, a very safe place when we're in it, but it can veer towards what's called the far enemy and the near enemy of compassion. So I want to describe that terrain for you. The direct opposite of compassion, which is called the far enemy, the direct opposite called the far enemy, it's called the far enemy because you can sense it from afar. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Cruelty is when we see or experience painful conditions in ourselves and we strike out at it. We strike out sometimes harming others, or harming ourselves with kind of more striking out, like this is bad for me to feel this, or I can't do this, or I'm going to do something else. Sometimes ignoring is a way that the far enemy works as cruelty. We ignore it. That's very, very cruel to ourselves. And so it's helpful to know this, when the far enemy comes, when we're trying to be open to what's difficult and we find out where we're just striking out at it with our words or our behavior or striking out at ourselves or we're turning away from what's going on inside. This is the far enemy of cruelty, cruel to ourselves and others. And... The near enemy is called the near enemy because it can seem like compassion. It can seem like compassion because compassion can be soft, but the near enemy is too soft. It's like we're helpless. We're kind of bogged down in the suffering. And when we're so bogged down in the suffering, we can't help others. We're just kind of, you know, we need help ourselves. So this near enemy is called grief. It's not a healthy grief, the grief of letting go, of really facing our losses and letting go, facing and letting go. But this grief is an unhealthy grief. It's when we're drowning in grief or we're drowning in our suffering or we're identified with our suffering or we're making a self out of this suffering. It's also self-pity sometimes uh, get so, we have so much self-pity that we just are, that's what's happening all the time. We're telling that story 
to ourselves and to others all the time. And so this is not compassion. It's a kind of quicksand that we, we think we're, um, we're falling into and we, we really need help to get out of that. So watch out for this near and far enemy and know when you're going there and when you need to you know, just come back and find a middle path for yourselves. I was, there was one time when I was going through a lot of um, really hard time in practice, and it was a time when I kind of was in a puddle of tears with my um, two teachers were there. There was a, the Seda Upandita and um, Nepalese uh, monk, Uniana Ponika, and I was describing what I was going through and saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm going home. And I, was, I happened to be in Australia at that time doing a retreat. And I knew I just couldn't take a plane and go home. But that's what I wanted to do. So I was in this puddle and of my own tears, um, so to say. And um, they were talking with one another. And I, I think there were not very many Westerners that Upandita had met up until that time. Maybe there were a few, but... Um, I guess he never saw an, a yogi like sobbing like that. So the the um, translator and we're going back and forth and maybe deciding what to say. And then the translator said, "Say Dao Ji." That means beloved teacher. Beloved teacher says that whenever you feel like you can't take it anymore, and I was saying this was happening to me when I do walking practice that just bend down very slowly and carefully, mindfully, and pull up your socks, and then stand up again and continue to walk. (laughs) And I said, I I was really just, at that time I was just really new new to his practice, new to his um, quality of practicing, and I I said, okay, (laughs) that's what I'll do. And so, uh, you know, then later I figured, oh, he's just, they don't know what to say to me. So that's what he says, you know, just be mindful in a different way. Bend down, pull up your socks. So whenever I have a chance and I'm in the same frame of mind, I, I do that and I have a little smile and I can keep going. So watch out for that realm, you know, that you might fall your, find yourselves in. So again, with uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, one of the last things I'll say is we realize <clears throat> the intimate connection between the relative truth and the ultimate truth of wisdom through the practice of compassion. It is through compassion that we become thoroughly grounded in the relative truth and thus prepared to receive the ultimate wisdom truth. Compassion brings great warmth and kindness to both perspectives. It helps us to be flexible in our interpretation of the truth and teaches us to give and receive help in practicing the precepts of non-harming. So let's sit for a moment and let the words dissolve.
So thanks for your kind attention. We have 30 minutes for walking and then coming in for the last sit of the day. Please join us also. Um, Yeah, happy to see you and to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.